Welcome to the First NAS Podcast, Sunday, March 5th, 2023. Last week we began this journey, this Lenten journey, this, this idea of, of going for the way, way of, or water for the way, and we talked about the first story of human sin in the Bible. Adam and Eve were put in the garden, and they were given one restriction. They were set in the garden. Everything in the garden is free for them to eat. There's this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree, God says. And, and it's not a big deal. It's just one tree. There's a whole garden. Everything they need, everything they could possibly want is, is there for them. Just don't eat from that one little tree. And, and then everything's cool until the tempter comes along. And, and the tempter comes along in, the, in Genesis 3, and all of a sudden, that one little restriction seems like, oh no, God is withholding something great from me. God has, take, has, has put the best, uh, the, and it's off limits. God is, is withholding the one thing that I need for, for my own personal satisfaction, my own personal joy. And, and Suddenly, that, that restriction made Adam and Eve feel like prisoners. They, they thought, God is withholding the one thing I really need. And, and so, uh, this, is, this is often how the Christian life is, is viewed, right? The, the Christian life is, is this set of rules that wants to restrict us. It's a straitjacket. Like, we could find peace and joy all on our own, but then God comes and he has all of these little rules and restrictions and, and things that we can't do. And, and the Christian life becomes, becomes this weight on us that keeps us from, from experiencing all of the good that we would experience if we were outside of it. And that's not, not what, what God intends, but in, in the story of Adam and Eve, they, they see that one restriction, they can't help themselves. They can't help themselves. They, they take the fruit, they eat it, and they find themselves out of luck. You know, they're, they're kicked out of the bounty of the Garden of Eden. They, they are cursed by the God who created them. They are set loose in the world to scratch a living from the dust from which they were formed. And, and they, they're, they're high and dry. <laughs> they are left without resources, without, without abundance, without the things they need. And at the same time that they lose everything, and God closes the door of Eden behind them, God does this amazing act of mercy. God reminds us that even when we sin, even when we choose to separate ourselves from God, God loves us and he clothes Adam and Eve. He gives them what they need to protect them as they go out from the peace of Eden into the real world. Well, this week I want to move from Old Testament to New and I want to consider how, how humanity has changed and how we've thought about the, that one restriction that, that Adam and Eve started with, and then, and then things seem to change by the time we get to Jesus. Through the, the history of, of humanity, the history of God with his people, in, until we get to, to Jesus, things, things seem to, to have changed. And while Adam and Eve are the, the parents of humanity, uh, the, the people group that Jesus traced his lineage through, the, the Jewish people, they trace their lineage back in, to, to a man named Abraham. And Abraham is this, this desert wanderer that just keeps getting confronted by God. And he can't seem to get God out from under his skin. 
And so we're, we're going to be looking a little bit about what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans about Abraham. But first I want to tell you a little story. I was uh, in, in mm, before my family moved out of the country, we, we did some fun things. I did some, some fun things uh, with relation to the Cascade Volcanoes. I was climbing quite a bit in the Cascade Volcanoes. And one of my favorite, favorite Cascade Volcanoes is Mount Jefferson in, in central Oregon. And it's, uh, it's not super big. Uh, it's, got, it's got about, mm, I don't know, 100 feet of rock at the top that's pretty steep. And it's, it's kind of fun. And uh, I, so I, I tried climbing it once, I don't know how many years ago, a lot of years ago, and, and I tried climbing it on a route that went on a glacier, and it got steep, and I got scared, and we turned around. And so then we, I went back with a brother-in-law that had climbed it with the first time, and, and a buddy, and we, we decided, yeah, the glacier route that's steep, it looks cool, but maybe it'd be easier if we avoided that route. And we went up uh, what's called the, the South Ridge of, of Mount uh, Jefferson. And Mount Jefferson South Ridge is uh, just a snow walk in the spring, uh, but we did it in the fall, and it was, it was a rock hop. And so we were just kind of hopping rock to rock. And there's, there's one issue climbing late season on the South Ridge of Mount Jefferson, and that's water. And we, we knew that we were going to camp up on the mountain somewhere. We knew that in seasons past, there had been a little snow field that we could get water out of. We could melt snow if we needed to. And so we were, we were kind of banking on that. And we had, we had checked out trip reports, and we couldn't tell for sure that that snow field was still there because it, eventually it kind of all melts away and then there's like no water up on the higher mountain unless you're on a glacier, and we weren't, we weren't going to get close to any glaciers. We had learned our lesson. And so we, uh, we started up, and there's a lake pretty low, and, and we stopped, and we filled up all of our water containers at the lake, but we were going to camp up higher, and so we, we really needed more water, and, and we, we climbed and climbed, and, and we, were, we were pretty much out of water and still going up, and then out of water and still going up, and, and there was no no snow to be seen. And we were, we were starting to get a little, a little thirsty, a little concerned, because if, you know, it's one thing to not have water for the camping. It's another thing to think about retracing all of our steps, hopping down on all of these rocks that we've hopped up without any water. And uh, we, were, we were getting a little, a little concerned, a little tired, a little you know, we had food. We were, we were going to be all right. It was just, it wasn't going to be real comfortable. And we finally came up and over, over a little, little rise. And there in just a little protected bowl was just maybe as much snow to cover like the center section of pews. Like not a very big, big chunk of snow. And there was just, there was this, the snow was melting. There was just a little trickle coming off. It was perfect. It was exactly what we needed because we, we were going to have to turn around and, and uh, come back another day if we hadn't found it. It was just a little trickle. If there had been another group there, uh, we probably would have not been very excited to see them because it was just enough trickle coming off of that that we didn't have to melt the snow. We could just filter the, the water coming off of that. 
It was perfect for us. Uh, and it allowed us to go on, and, and we summited the next day, and you know, we were heroic and awesome and amazing. And uh, anyway, it just took a trickle, though, right? Like, it, just, it was just that little, little tiny bit of water. It was, it was all we needed in order to, to be successful on that, on that trip. I want, to, I want to transition back and look at, at Abraham. Uh, we're, we're going to read from, from this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to, to the church in Rome. And as we, as we read about Abraham, uh, we're, we're reading about how some of the early, early Christians were trying to square their, their experience prior to Jesus with what they, what they were understanding about Jesus. Because everybody came to, to Jesus from a, a prior religious background, right? When in, in those early, early days of the church, this is, this is early, early on in the church. Nobody was born into it yet. These are people who, who had come out of either Judaism, and they knew all about what the Old Testament said. They knew, they knew it better than you and I do, for sure. They, they knew everything that that Abraham was and, and stood for. But then there were also, also non-Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians in, in that early church, people who, who had not been in a synagogue where they would have learned about the Old Testament, the people who had no idea about Abraham. And so Paul, Paul approaches Abraham uh, as if the people have some knowledge and some understanding, but carefully. So let me, let me just read the first few verses here of Romans chapter 4. This is verses 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What, he does, what did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but sometimes we, uh, but something they have earned, excuse me. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. So to understand exactly what Paul is saying, we have to read between the lines a little bit, try to understand what it is that the people believed about Abraham prior to becoming Christian. And so the Jewish believers, they, they had this understanding of, of who uh, Abraham was, and it, and it has to do with their, their understanding of um, how a person is made right with God. Uh, they, they understood um, that, that Abraham was the founder of the nation, right? Humanly speaking, he says in, in uh, verse 1, and he says our, our nation, our Jewish nation, because Paul himself was, was Jewish. And so he, uh, he goes on and he asks the, the rhetorical question then, but what did Abraham learn? What did Abraham understand about being, being right? made right with God. And as people familiar with the New Testament, as people who, who have read the rest of Romans chapter 4, we kind of know we can, fill in, we can fill in the blank. We know exactly what 
what Abraham did. He, he had faith, and, and that's what, what made him righteous. But uh, the early Jewish believers had, had this thought about Abraham. They, they had this thought that Abraham, he, he wasn't necessarily made right just by his faith, but actually Abraham had lived a perfect life according to God's law. And, and so the early Jewish, Jewish believers, bef- before they were Christian, they, they would have been taught in, in the synagogue week after week, year after year, Abraham, the founder of our nation, was perfect and acceptable to God because he perfectly obeyed what God wanted him to do. He was righteous because, because he followed the law of God. And we, need to, we need to think just a little bit about that. That's an interesting, an interesting position. Uh, it's something to ponder. Um, it's, it's actually not very likely. <laughs> it's not very likely. Uh, one reason it's not very likely that Abraham followed perfectly the, the law of God was the law of God wasn't given in the days of Moses. It was several hundred years later when Moses was taking God's people out of Egypt and toward the promised land that the, the law was given. And so the, this, uh, this idea that Abraham fulfilled the law perfectly, it, it would be a miracle kind of unlike any other miracle that, that's recorded in Scripture. It, it, would be, it would be something different than God has, has ever done before. And we have to remember, I, I just want to remind you like what the law was. It, it wasn't just this, this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil that, that people couldn't, couldn't eat from. It was, it was actually several hundred rules, several hundred laws that, that were gathered and, and told people how to find and follow God. It, it wasn't just one, one rule. It was, it was you know, it, we think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When, when we lived in Ecuador, we, there was a lemon tree on our campus. It made great lemons. On occasion, uh, we would wake up in the morning and say, let's make scones with lemon. And so we'd send one of our daughters to the tree, the lemon tree. But the, the lemon tree history around it, uh, it, it had a fence. <laughs> it had a fence with a locked gate. And uh, we had a key to the gate, fortunately. Uh, but because it was locked and in, a, in this gate, uh, we called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and so I would send, send my daughters with the key down to get a lemon from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, probably really sacrilegious, isn't it? We shouldn't have done that. I was teaching them something wrong. We think of, we think of Adam and Eve in the garden experiencing that, uh, that tree, that, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's that one little, you know, in the campus in Quito, that, that was like probably a, a eight foot by eight foot fenced off area. And, and we think of Adam and Eve like that's their restriction, right? The, the law of God, as, as it got to Jesus' day, it had become something much, much bigger. And, and I think about like the, the difference between the, that little lemon tree in the middle of our campus, and then I, I think, about, I compare it to like the law that had grown up in, in God's time was more like the, the fence that went around our entire property 
Uh, our seminary campus was probably about four or five acres of property. And the whole thing was fenced off on every side. But not only was it fenced off on every side, it butted up against our neighbor's property that was fenced off on every side. So we had, we had one side that was neighbor's. And so, like, you couldn't just walk around the five acres of our campus. You would actually have to go around the entire block. And the block was, was really weird and bizarre. I never, I, I couldn't have told you how far you would have to go to the north to get around it, like several miles, because it's this one chunk of property that it just wasn't divided by any streets and just kind of a weird, weird the way the city developed. Uh, it, the law became like that huge, you can't even fit your mind around it. You don't know how far it ends. And, and so God's people told themselves in the first century, it's possible to please God because Abraham was able to do everything that the law said. It's possible to do what's right. Because Abraham did what's right. But the Apostle Paul comes and he, he says, it's, it seems nice to believe this about Abraham, but what did Abraham actually learn about being made right with God? And what Abraham actually learned about being made right with God, he, Paul makes sure that he quotes from the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. He, he says, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. It wasn't that he did all the right things, right? Paul, Paul is quick to, to compare somebody who works to earn his wages with the grace that God shows people. Abraham didn't work to earn his wages. Abraham believed God, and he believed who God was. He trusted in God. I he trusted in God. Abraham, in, in the passage that is being quoted in, is from Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, what Abraham is believing is, is a promise about who Abraham will become. Abraham had moved away from his family and his home. He was wandering in the desert. He didn't have a single child. His heir was going to be one of his servants. And God came to him and said, Abraham, look up at the stars. You are going to have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. And so, older than he should be to, to start a family, Abraham looked up at the stars of the sky and he believed that God could do that. It's a good promise. Like, we are prone to believe good promises. Like, if I told all of you uh, young folks who are coming up on grades here soon, if I told you you're going to get straight A's, you might believe it because you're probably all spectacular students and probably all going to get straight A's. Uh, but you probably wouldn't believe it just because I said it, right? Uh, Abraham, you know, he might have wanted to believe that incredible promise. He might have wanted to think like, yeah, that good thing, that could happen to me. But Genesis doesn't say Abraham believed that good promise about him, and so he was righteous. Genesis tells us Abraham believed God. Abraham's faith was in the one who made the promise, not in the promise itself. Abraham believed God. 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the, the Apostle Paul, he, he continues on, and uh, he, he thinks he's kind of, he's getting his point made, and he, he pulls in another, another voice from the Old Testament. He quotes from, from King David in verses 6 through 8. It, it says, David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose, sin, whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. See, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul is pretty sure that he's made his point. He's made his point. He, he has said, it is by grace that God makes people right with himself. It is, it is when people believe that, that God is capable of doing it, when, when people believe the promises that God says about them, that's when they are made right with God. Even David says so. Even David says so. It's not just, it's not just Abraham, but it also it's found in the Psalms. But those early Jewish Christians, they weren't done yet. <laughs> they weren't done yet. They had one more little ace up their sleeves. They, they had this idea that, yeah, there's the whole law, but then there's one really important little ceremony that, that people have to go through in order to be acceptable by God. And for those early Jewish Christians, it was, it was the ceremony of circumcision. And, and as far as a required religious ceremony, I mean, it checks a lot of boxes. Circumcision, like it's private, it's painful, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of exclusive, you know, only half the population has to go through circumcision. Uh, circumcision seems to be like uh, this, this sort of thing that... It, the religious people early in the, in the New Testament really wanted to impose on all Christians regardless of their background. And, and uh, it was particularly appealing to the Jewish Christian men because they had already been through it. They didn't have to, it didn't cost them anything to require it of the Gentile Christians. And so from, from this early Jewish perspective, Christian perspective, Circumcision is a great requirement to place on people. It's a great requirement to place on people. And it was selected by, by certain early Christians as, as the thing that will distinguish us. And so Paul addresses that specifically in verses 9 through 12. He says, Now, is this blessing only for Jews, or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? We, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith, and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. So in dealing with circumcision, Paul says, it's not the thing. It's not it. Sorry. It's, uh, 
it's that faith preceded circumcision. It's not that we can, can choose one rule. We can't, we can't limit, we can't take that big giant law and, and boil it down to one specific thing, even if it's the perfect religious ceremony. We can't do that. And Paul hammers away that faith is the reason that God accepts people. He, that he, faith is the reason that God makes them right and draws them into the family. The law wasn't the way. It wasn't by following rules. Even the law of circumcision would not make people acceptable, but only faith in God. And so he sums up, gives us a, a little bit more information in verses 13 through 17, where he says, clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary, and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to keep it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it, whether, it is, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told us, I have made you father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. The religious word that we give to, to trying to follow all the rules to, to make yourself acceptable and right before God, the religious word we, we use for that, it's legalism. Uh, legalism is, is trying to force God to, to be good to you by following the rules, by doing the right thing, by, by obeying the law, by being circumcised. That, that is legalism. And, and uh, the idea that Abraham fulfilled perfectly the, the law and the, the idea that Abraham was acceptable to God because of circumcision, those are both classic legalistic lies classic legalistic lies that, that say he did something that made him good enough for God. And so over the course of time, from, from creation uh, to Abraham to Jesus's time, humanity went on seeing the, that restricted area that God was creating and expanding. They, they, saw, they saw those rules that God, God was giving people and they created new ways to, to follow those rules and ways to make those rules stricter. They, they were doing that with this mindset that God's grace was a limited commodity that they needed to fight for. See, uh, legalism makes us fall into this trap of believing lies about ourselves and other people and about God. It makes us into really, really good judges, right? Legalism makes us really good judges. It, it, it tempts us to judge other people really harshly for the good things that we do that they're not doing, right? It's kind of like the Jewish Christians did with circumcision. We look for those areas that don't cost us anything because we're already doing them. And we say, oh man, the world's going to hell in a handbasket because they're not doing this one thing that I'm doing. It's, legalism just 
turns us automatically into, into judges. It turns us into to judges of ourselves, though. We, we live in this, in this cycle of, of not being good enough and knowing that we're not good enough when we buy into the lies of legalism. And we fall into this, this, this cycle of, of failing because, as Paul says, the only way to, to fulfill a law is to have no law. If, if there is a law, you will break it. And so we, we fall into this trap, we fail, we say, okay, I'm going to be better. We double down our effort, we grit our teeth, we say, I can do it, and we fail again. And we, and we just stumble into this cycle of, of shame upon shame on ourselves because we don't measure up, because we can't do it on our own. And then legalism turns God into Santa Claus. Legalism says that God is, is watching from heaven and deciding whether he will give us good gifts or whether we're going to receive a lump of coal based solely on whether we are good or naughty. And, and uh, God is, is a lot less trusting than the mall Santa Claus. You, know, you can go to the, to the Santa Claus. They don't have a mall Santa Claus anymore. We don't have a mall. Oh, my goodness. When I was a boy, we had a mall Santa Claus. And he would just ask me, were, were you a good boy this year? And I knew the answer was maybe, kind of. I mean, but I said, yes, Santa, I'm, I was a good boy. And he said, okay, I'll bring you that football. We, we turn, when, when we become legalists, when we say it's by doing the right thing that we force God's hand, we, we turn God into a much stricter Santa Claus. A much stricter, a much stricter than just asking, were you good or naughty? But he knows the depths of your heart. And, and we all know that in the depths of our heart, there was some area that was not up to God's standard. And the, the Apostle Paul, he unpacks it all in, in verses 16 and 17 here by talking about how, how we are certain to receive it, not by living according to the, the law of Moses, but by having faith like Abraham. He says this, this happens because we believe who God is. God is not a miser withholding grace and forgiveness and joy and kindness and love from your life. God is not withholding all of the things that will make you happy and satisfied from you and waiting until you're just a little bit more obedient to give you a little bit more. God is, is a giver. God is, is prodigal in his giving. God is a waster of grace. God wants to pour out more than he knows will ever be needed. God, God wants to, to give you, like the, the wording that Jesus uses is, is pressed down, shaken, shaken together, and then it's still overflowing. Like God wants to give you more than you can handle. And, and we, we become legalists because we worry that we're going to miss out on the trickle, trickle, trickle of God's grace. We're going to miss out on, on, that, on that little tiny bit that there might be. So we've got to be better than the next person, the person next to us, so that we get it and they don't. And we need to judge them harshly. harshly. 
It, and and we, we think that God's, God's mercy and kindness are, are limited. They're like a little tiny patch of snow on the side of a big mountain. If anybody else shows up, there's not going to be enough for them too. And we want all we can for ourselves. We regret every drop that we miss. We get down on ourselves for every, every mistake we make. We see, we see every bit that somebody gets before us. But nothing could be further from the truth. We think we are so thirsty for God's grace and in danger of drying up into little raisins because we, we can't get enough. We're not going to get enough. When actually we are drowning in God's grace. It's, it's not a trickle, trickle, trickle that made a fatherless man the father of many nations. Uh, sorry, a childless man the father of many nations. It wasn't a trickle, trickle, trickle of power that brought Jesus back from the dead. And you, you don't have to wrestle grace and kindness and mercy from God's hands. You don't have to pace around the boundary of the law to try to find a, a spot where you could be good enough according to, to that boundary. God is offering to anyone who will simply say, God's plan seems better than my plan. God wants to give as much grace as you can handle. He wants to drown you in it. When we take a step of faith and, and ask for, for his goodness, and so the, this morning we're going to, we're going to act this out, this, this God giving us his grace. And it's, it's kind of an ironic way that we act out God giving us grace. Because we're going to come to communion and we're going to have little tiny cups. <laughs> These little tiny cups of, of the elements of communion. Uh, it's it's in, in no way in proportion to God's grace. <laughs> These little tiny cups. We, we come to this, this meal uh, to, to receive because, because Jesus told his followers to do it. That there is grace available for us when we do it. And before we get to, to communion, I'd, I'd just go back to some of those promises that, and have you consider maybe, maybe a promise from scripture that, that you're struggling with, that you're, you're trying to, to grab hold of and understand. Maybe, maybe it's just the idea that Jesus would never forsake you as he promised his disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Maybe, maybe you're struggling with feeling like, like you're alone. And and you don't know for sure that God is, is right there. Or maybe it's the promise that Paul writes that, that even what you are going through right now, in, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, even what you are going through right now, it could be worked out for good for you, for those who love him, for, who are called according to his purpose. Or maybe it's that promise that God gave to the prophet Jeremiah that you could actually find God. That God wants to be found if you would seek God. 
Maybe it's just the promise that you could be loved. The promise that you could be forgiven. The promise that you could show love well. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have invited us into this holy mystery. We thank you, God, that we have been allowed to participate. That we are, we are receivers of grace, not just a little bit. Not just a little bit of grace, God, but of your incredible, amazing poured out, pressed down, shaken together, an overflowing grace. Help us, Lord, to remember the grace and the mercy that you have offered us. Help us to remember the good things that you care to put into our lives. Help us to remember, Lord, that you are offering them for us if we'd simply believe it. And believe it because of who you are, not because of of who we are. So God, we, we step into this new week that you have given us as people who, who daily want to remember to believe, to just believe the promise that you will be with us, that you won't forsake us, that you want to forgive us, that you, you want to do something great in us and through us, that you could bless others through us, that we could be we could be your hands and feet and show your kindness and love and mercy and grace this week. And so, Lord, we give it to you. We open our hearts. We, we let you. We invite you. We ask you. Help us, God. Move in us and move through us, we pray. We give you the glory and honor. Say thank you, God. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. God bless you as you go. You're dismissed.